Hey, I'm Cal. Hey, and I'm Kathy. We're the co-hosts of the Heal Well Healthcare Podcast Interdisciplinary, and we're here to uh, invite you to become patrons of our podcast. We're going to team up with the platform called Patreon to invite you even to become an even more active member of this community. So we've got a couple of levels, uh, depending on your interest and uh, and passion about this particular topic and how much you love me and Kathy, perhaps. Uh, so. Uh, the first level, you can become an official patron. It's $5 a month, and it allows you to have early access to episodes and, of course, to know that you are part of making sure this podcast keeps happening. Kathy, tell them what else they could win. Oh, well, level two is called All Access Patron, which gives you early access to our episodes and access to bonus episodes Boom. for $10 a month. And then we've got the VIP patron. So you get all those other things, early access, bonus episodes, and then a monthly, what they call AMAs, which are ask me anything, which means that you get uh, unfettered one-on-one-ish access uh, to me and or, or both uh, Kathy uh, to ask us anything, uh, something that came up on the podcast, something that you're uh, trying to blow up in your own community and how we can help you, whatever it might be. So uh, become a patron and help us get the word out and build our community and Thanks already for the love that you're bringing to interdisciplinary and heal well and making the world a better place. We love the love and we love you right back. Hello, I'm Cal Cates. And I am Kathy Ryan, a heal well wannabe. Hardly. You're you're all heal well all the time. I, I try. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Interdisciplinary. In this podcast, massage therapy educators, practitioners, and positive deviants, Kathy Ryan and me, Cal Cates, will use research, science, experience, and humor to explore the broad landscape of healthcare through a truly interdisciplinary lens. We'll have honest, uncomfortable conversations about topics like access, racism, death, ageism, ableism, and equity. You'll always learn something, you'll always laugh, and you'll come away better informed and with some real things you can do in your own community and practice to create a more compassionate and collaborative system of care for all humans. Make sure you go out there and use all your social media might to like us and share us and tell the world uh, that you listen to Interdisciplinary. Leave us a review, leave us some stars wherever it is that you consume your podcasts, and uh, we thank you for listening. Here we are, the moment you've all been waiting for, this week's pun. I'm, I'm kind of branching out a little bit with, uh, you know, we, we usually do the one-liners, but uh, I, I want to say today that uh, I just want to thank Sidewalks Everywhere for keeping me off the streets. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kathy, what is happening in British Columbia on this lovely day? Oh, it's, it's a beautiful snowy day here. Uh, COVID is a real thing. We're still navigating all of that. And um, yeah, that's where we that's where we are at. Yeah, that's about where we are, too. I think um, nothing particularly new in COVID, although uh, I am we're having a lot more conversations here at Heal Well about what to do about the um, vaccine distribution inequities and um, what what those of us who um, have already gotten them or in, and really we're all in positions to, to say something and do something about the lack of equity. Um, but having some of those conversations in the Heal Well online community and um, just really figuring out, you know, if you get offered the vaccine, but you know, there are people who should be getting offered the vaccine, 
does turning down the vaccine really do anything or do you show up and kind of ask some questions? And so I think that's a topic that um, I think we'll, we'll be taking up soon about uh, it's going to continue, I think. And, and government agencies have said, oh, we want to really prioritize the communities that have been hit the hardest by COVID, which tend to be black and brown communities. And then when the rollout happens, that doesn't seem to be what actually happens. So uh, I think we have a lot of work to do there. And, and as you said, nothing new, unfortunately. Well, and I know you and I have talked about this before. And as much as I'd like to say that Canada is different, sadly, in that regard, we are not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uphill. So um, we have with us uh, Elder Angela Overton, uh, who we're going to get downright informal with very soon, but uh, we're really excited to have uh, her with us today to share with us about her incredible experience in uh, faith communities and in healthcare and how all those things overlap. So without further ado, welcome to the show. Thank you, uh, Cal and Kathy. It is my absolute pleasure uh, to be here. Tell us what our listeners should know about all of the things that you have learned uh, that have brought you to this place in your career as a senior advisor at the Center to Transform Advanced Care and, and other really important work. That how you embrace people matter. How you touch folks, uh, whether it is emotionally, whether it is physically, whether it is clinically, whether it is spiritually, how we touch uh, matters. Yeah. And you've had personal experience with illness, but also certainly in your role um, working with, um, as a clergy person, working with communities and dealing with illness. Like, tell us, tell us a little bit about your path to where you are now and how you have found yourself caring for people and, and seeing what needs to be done out there. So at a very young age, uh, freshman in high school, I, I was uh, diagnosed with uh, a form of cancer. It was a rare form of cancer, rhabdomyosarcoma. I was diagnosed in the late stages. And when I asked uh, the diagnosing physician, could I die? He said, yes. And so I was a freshman in high school and um, my life just turned upside down in a moment. Uh, I was raised in the church. Uh, so a very uh, strong African-American church who believed in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that spirit would aid and help in all situations. And what I found in my four year battle with cancer is that many times uh, faith leaders came uh, to my bedside and interceded and prayed, and it was encouraging. It was uplifting. Uh, the word uh, that was professed through their mouths uh, in the pulpit was helpful. It, like I said, it was spiritual. It was the rock. It was the foundation. But as time went on, there was no connectivity to resources. How do I practically, uh, practically get through this moment? And so really, I would say at that, that at that age, I began to in the pediatric oncology floor at Cleveland Clinic, I began to walk in and out of the rooms of my fellow uh, constituents or patients and try to encourage them. And then if I knew of resources that was available in our community, I would share. And so really, if 
you can make a deal with God. I really said in that moment, God, if you spared my life, I'll dedicate my life, the rest of my life, uh, working and walking with individuals uh, to kind of make this a holistic care. Uh, all, uh, and I know that you all's focus deals with interdisciplinary care. And so this describes really truly the context of care, that manner in which care is delivered that all components touch. And so as a patient and as one who has survived, um, I flatlined uh, during um, my time. Uh, I've been through uh, major crisis. And so interdisciplinary care is essential because you meet uh, the patient or the person that is dealing with illness where they are. So I've done, I'm a minister, you know, in places of worship. I've done visitation for years. I've been walking in and out of the rooms of those, um, not only with clinical issues, but also mental health. You know, as a, a minister, you journey where you should be journeying with individuals that you have been entrusted to. So that means providing support and whatever that support is, you are trained well enough to hear as you are listening and then being able to adapt and to provide um, resources and care that will assist them. So CTAC is based out in Washington, DC. Uh, it's our mission that all Americans with serious illness, especially the sickest and most vulnerable receive comprehensive, high quality person and family centered care that is consistent with their goals, values and honors their dignity. I oversee the interfaith and uh, work group that's there. And so the, these are faith leaders all throughout the United States where our mission is to journey better with those, um, the divine, holy, uh, whatever the faith tradition is. Um, making sure that we honor that call and serve um, folks very well. Yeah, I think I think when we think of interdisciplinary, we uh, well, when I say we, I mean sort of broadly healthcare. I feel like what you just described is so often not considered, and that we think of sort of quote unquote clinical interventions and. I feel really lucky that my entrance into hospital-based practice 15 years ago was with palliative care. And so chaplains and spiritual direction have always been a big part of what I've seen care include. But when you, you know, you just read CTAC's mission and it's like, well, duh, of course you would want that, but <laughs> we're nowhere near that. Uh, and it, yeah, it's really, um, we believe it. But when it comes down to really doing it, there are a lot of barriers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and what you described to, as well to me, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about, wow, that sounds like nonpartisan faith, you know, where faith from a variety of different types of thinking can come together at the table and talk about what is best for the patient and it not being, well, you have to believe in this particular deity or God, or it's just that all these variety of faith leaders are coming together, which again, I think speaks to the whole disciplinary thing, interdisciplinary thing, where there's not really a hierarchy or one that is considered to have more importance or value than another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was watching a, I think a, a talk that you gave, um, I can't remember where I found it online, but um, 
there was a, in the transcript, I, I copied this. Um, it said, you said, if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, that means whatever we do in love must produce justice. And I, I have a very complicated relationship with the word justice because I feel like justice and sort of vengeance get somehow <laughs> conflated in our society. And I'm curious when you, what does justice look like from your perspective and sort of how as healthcare providers do we, what's our role in ensuring or even just facilitating the likelihood of justice? Well, it's so interesting because when you think of morals and you think of ethics, and you think of equity, uh, which are all components of justice, it gets conflated and confused with our interpretation of what that is. So so many times I could be saying something and, and Cal, you could be saying something, but our understanding of it is completely different. And so Definitely. we think we're on the same page, but we're not. <laughs> right. And so when you look at equity, uh, it is the quality of being fair and impartial. That means um, whatever we need to do uh, in order to create a place and system and nation uh, and world that is just, that is filled with justice, um, we have to examine, is this fair to all? And so fair doesn't necessarily mean the same. And so uh, we get that uh, very confused when we omit love. And so this is the spiritual piece of it, but this is also the moral and the ethic. It's the, the ethos, if you will, of I feel life. And so even when you break down the word love, or if you look even at it in the Greek, there is this eros love, which is sexual and it's passionate. And then philela, which is a deep friendship. And ludus, it's a playful love. And agape, it's love for everyone. And pragma, it's a long-standing love. And then you have that that other love, uh, philusia, which is a love of the self. Yeah. And so you then, if you don't understand the the essence of the depth of love and the many components of love, you can even get that confused with a love that produces justice. And so what I like to focus on is the agape love, the friendly love, and um, the deep friendship love. But if you really look at agape love, this means that I have a love for everyone. And so this is where love is justice. And it's it's not about treating your neighbor as you as yourself per se. It's finding out what that neighbor needs and then providing that into, into their world, uh, into their places. And so um, a love that is just, so justice means for me, um, environments, institutions, um, systems that um, will bring about the best opportunity for everyone equally. Yeah. And tell me what your second part of the question was. I got excited. <laughs> no, well, no, I, oh, so the second part is, so, so as providers, I mean, it's interesting because you know, I feel like George Floyd's murder gave Healwell the the opening to really bring the social justice aspect of healthcare that we've always felt very passionate about really to the front. And but we've got we've gotten some pushback. Like, what does this have to do with massage therapy? And sort of, you know, 
what does it have to do with being a person, you know? And, and so as healthcare providers, because I, I think a lot of our listeners are various shades of healthcare providers, how do we, what can we do to facilitate the likelihood of that kind of love, that kind of justice in our systems, whether they be great big hospital systems or cities or towns, or even my tiny practice of three practitioners, where are the places maybe that you see love being obstructed? Where, you know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> okay. So there is a lot there. Yes. Um, so you said a lot. And so I, I want to try to touch on each um, appropriately. So we all have to come to the table, but there also has to be an open table. And so that means that you have to have diverse tables. It won't be sufficient per se to say we desire diversity, but no one at the table resembles the diversity that you're seeking after. Uh, so that's one component of it. When you have, uh, let's say a transgender individual, a person with disabilities, um, an African-American, a Native American, a Latin American, you know, an Asian American, you have diverse folks actually coming to the table. That's when really truly systems can be created that will reach your target audience. So if for one, if you're trying to live in a just and fair world, and even if you have the desire, who will teach you that the words that just came out of your, 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 your mouth, um, had a racist undertone. It had a um, very judgmental undertone. So if you have like-minded individuals that look just like you and walk just like you and talk <laughs> like you, you are really setting yourself up for a hindrance. I was reading even in a Forbes magazine that diversity pushes consumer satisfaction. I have no idea why we haven't grabbed a hold of that 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 same sort of model will also improve patient healthcare satisfaction because you have folks at the table that have come together with the desire to improve quality of life for the individuals that they, they serve. And what we learned with uh, COVID-19 is that our nation is deeply divided. Our nation is deeply um segregated, if you will. I, I know that's, it's just true. It's, it's just, just true. <laughs> Since the transatlantics, um, for example, to 2021, we still live in a society where folks are treated differently based upon the, the hue of their skin color. So that's an issue. The George Floyd incident, as you mentioned, was quite traumatic uh, for many because it was a modern day lynching uh, before your very eyes. And so with other incidents um, that we've had, uh, you know, here I'm living in Louisville, Kentucky, so Breonna Taylor, you know, all of these incidents, we heard of it. We saw videos later, but we didn't see life in an individual. And then eight minutes and 46 seconds, I think it was later, <coughs> that length of time, which was, it was gone. So, um, thinking that we're done with black codes and Jim Crow's and um, the civil unrest, it was very challenging, complicated with COVID-19. So 
it is very clear that um, humanity and the sanctity of it and to provide this, it, it is not so. It is going to be crucial for us to move forward to, in putting aside of our differences in order to gain commonality. So when we gain this sort of commonality for the desire to improve life for everyone, then we can find harmony together. Then we can create best practices together. Then we can try those best practices out. Then we have evidence-based practices because this is what we set out to do. We strategically aligned ourselves. And Cal and Kathy, I love uh, massage. Okay, I'm a caregiver. You know, I have a child who has lupus, and I have a child who is has is is on the spectrum. And so, um, massage therapy has been critical for both of them, right? And so, I, I'm the the one that hasn't been licensed <laughs> to massage, but I understand. Do I have an option to receive massage therapy? No, not so much. But I have an option to receive behavioral therapy. So uh, one of the things that I love about CTAG is it's it's not just about the interfaith work group, but it's also about policy and advocacy and state coalitions. These are individuals and even our members for CTAG. It, it, we, we range from hospice care to palliative care and massage, listen, uh, folks, representatives, uh, literacy projects, home care, you know, nurses, it's everyone that touches the person that we are trying to serve. So how on earth can we come up with a strategic plan where we're not all represented in the room? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're having another drop the mic moment. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. There has to be representation. Uh, otherwise, there's no opportunity for those of us who are white to, to learn and understand and grow and grasp the complexity of, of what has been going on in the world, the complexity of the inequity of what's been going on in the world. Yeah. Well, I wonder too, what, what do you see in terms of, because I mean, as you're describing that table uh, with the various representation, you know, the other conversation that we're regularly having is there's a really distinct difference between tokenism and inclusion. And um, you know, how do we move white people don't know about their whiteness and how their whiteness shows up and how it prevents meaningful inclusion. And I imagine that you have initiated and participated in a variety of uncomfortable conversations around that. Uh, and I, I guess I want to open the floor for you to share whatever you feel like might be useful um, to share in this format around when you've had to call in or call out or, or what do you see systemically in terms of things that make it hard to do meaningful inclusion? Oh, that is a very weighted question. <laughs> And uh, it also, if I'm honest, has is connected to, I would say, some traumatic moments I've had in my life okay. and tokenism. Um, so let's break down what tokenism is. It's that when um, someone of, let's say, for example, your target audience you only, um, you're used as an individual to say, um, we have diversity. And um, 
but it's tokenism is when you talk about diversity, when the subject comes about equity, you're pointed out to be the expert on that subject. And um, one of the things that um, I see often is many times when it's related or questions of equity or even policy, many faith leaders are brought into the room. The truth of the matter is we have experience with that per se on the social level. But as far as being academically trained, or we haven't, many of us have not done that. And so uh, tokenism and inclusion, um, it happens often when uh, you're asked to speak of faith. Then you're, you, you have an expert enough to talk about faith. Um, you're asked to speak, to speak on, uh, like I said, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. What does that look like? But when it comes to other pieces, um, now there are experts in this field. You know, you wouldn't necessarily want me to, to share on the legislative piece, but there are plenty of uh, uh, those individuals that have been minoritized. I don't use the word minorities. Those who have been minoritized yeah. who can speak on that subject. But if you don't have that individual in your circle or at your table, you'll go to the individual that looks like what you're trying to get at. And that is not inclusion. That is not inclusion at all. Every field that there is, there is an expert to be able to speak on that subject with the target audience of being that subject. So uh, if it is an African-American, there is an expert to speak on that subject. Don't just look for the African-American in the audience and call them out for that. So, yeah. uh, so I've dealt with this. I'm, I've been doing um, visitation. I've been doing ministry 25 years now. So, uh, you know, we've come a long ways in many instances and in other instances, we ain't gone nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that is such an important point that you just made, you know, you know, like for me, for example, um, someone who identifies as queer, don't look to me to speak for all queer people. I can I can talk about my experience of growing up queer in the 1970s, not a picnic, um, <laughs> or living in the world that we live in. But that, you know, and I think that's a thing that sometimes people miss. You know, we'll just look for someone with that color skin and then they can speak to this and then now we know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, you no, no, no. Well, and that's, and, and I think you were hinting at this too, Angela, like, and that is the only thing that they're qualified to speak about. Mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to notice that they're also a policy expert or also an engineer or also a, this is our black person. This is our Asian person. And, you know, I'm thinking about when, when we get into topics like this, where there can become suddenly this sense of project and like, this is so big. I don't even know how to undo this. I think I was just, it just came to my mind. One of my colleagues went to a workshop last year with Sabine Selassie, who does a lot of um, exploration around racial healing and racial trauma. And in one of the breakout sessions, she invited the participants to organize themselves. If, if it would increase their comfort to organize themselves in groups of racialized groups, basically. And so, you know, African American people being together, or Asian people being together or whatever. And this white nurse had come with a, a friend of hers that she'd been friends with this gentleman for, you know, 15 or so years. And he was Filipino. And when they went to break out, he left her to go to be with people of color. And she like, kind of in front of the group was like, wait, where are you going? And 
and he was like, well, I want to be with people who will really see me. And she's like, well, but we're, we've been friends for 15 years. And he said, well, but yeah, but I'm your, I'm your Filipino friend. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I don't, I don't see that you're Filipino. And he's like, that's my point. We are friends and I do love you. And I know that you love me, but when we're talking about these issues of racial healing, you and I have had very different experiences and you're wholly unaware of how different my experience is and that you're not seeing how different it is, is actually a way of not seeing me and that we can engage in inclusion, even in our own little tiny parts of the world. And we, rather than wearing our different friends as badges go, Oh, like how have I not seen my friend who is this thing that's different from me? And like, we don't want to do that. It's really uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, that's where we learn. Uh, that's where we really can engage um, each other. Yeah. Knowing the history of where we are. That's why I think America, American history, as it's taught in our schools, uh, it's it's done such a disservice, not only from uh, to uh, to us, but to future generations. It really has um, prevented us from really uh, healing, as you as you just said. And uh, because it is not inclusive, right? There is no integration of all of American's history, even the 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 de deplorable uh, years of um, what I would say was just outright violence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and we don't, we don't want to say that actually that's kind of a lot of American history. <laughs> I mean, you know, we know, we talk about, you know, regardless of political persuasion, the phrase make America great again, assumes America was great. And mm -hmm. if you really go into the details of how America became America, I, it's hard to find the greatness, really. <laughs> well, you know, and it's not even just America. It's really a thought. Yeah. You know, we we don't really study evil. We don't study um, that it has always been around us and it has perversed itself in such a way into individuals that allowed evil to come forth. And so we don't, we don't study it personally. Well, some of us do, you know, you, you, have, <laughs> right. you know, um, yeah, some of us do, but we all don't look around um, to see truly if we address it, even if we look at our, I know this is going a little bit off, but even if we look at our penal system, you know, it's, 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 it's horrible as, and even as it, in its inception, how it was even established the, the idea for punishment, you know, that does not, um, and not everyone will agree with me, but to punish another individual incites a form of evil that I don't even think people are aware of. Yeah. So uh, to, to not look at it as you look at it as retributive versus as reconciliation. And when you have that mindset and it's the same thing with our health system, um, we're not necessarily looking at it um, as nonprofit per se, but you know, we have to analyze some of these things. And, and I'll tell you this though, um, if a, a system will not change, if the people do not change, who is operating the change, who are making the rules and reference to change, our legislators, all of that, it will not change if they do not change. 
And so subsequently, this whole piece of um, that we're dealing with right now, it, it's only going to change when we we address um, the history. The, the historical components of it and the effect that it has is where we are today. Yes. <laughs> Again, another drop the mic moment. Um, I think that is such a fundamentally important statement that you just made is we really have to honestly look at our history. And that's the same here in Canada. We are a colonized nation. So we are a nation that was built on genocide and the eradication of another culture, their language, their, their governance uh, structure, everything, you know, is, is what has happened here in Canada within, with the indigenous people that were, are the original people that li lived on this land. So until we can really own our history, I don't know how we're going to be able to really start to move forward in a different way. And I agree with you. We have to teach history differently in our schools. So people really understand the tragedy that occurred that, you know, this nation was built from and similarly in the U S as well. And yes, there was slavery in Canada too. Don't think that there wasn't a lot of people think that there wasn't, but yeah, no, <laughs> there was, right. there was slavery here too. You know, sometimes that gets sort of glossed over because of the underground railroad, but, yeah, no, sadly, that was that is part of our history as well. That's not taught in in school here in Canada. You have to kind of scramble to find that information. Well, you can you've said a mouthful there, Kathy, because uh, if you in dealing with history, then you'll also have to deal with the creation of race, right? Uh, the creation of colorism, and uh, you'll have to uh, think of. The uh, when race was created, it was to support a construct uh, for economic wealth and gain. Yeah. And so uh, the only way that that construct could uh, be realized or sustained is that individuals will buy in to the notion of white superiority, whiteness, the Eurocentric, uh, westernized way of thought was uh, superior to any other thought. And so you have a colonization of not just Canada, but any all throughout our world, this took place. And so even um, you have black and brown individuals or any non-white folk that still have to deal with the ramifications of being non-preferred, non-value. And so that value uh, construct of white superiority devalued anyone and all that didn't fit within that brain. When we don't deal with that, even black and brown little girls and boys are walking around with an esteem issue that results in uh, inappropriate behaviors. But there is a reason behind that. If we had in our institutions, in our places of worship even, because that still goes on, preference and patriarchal system, this all affects the way we are touching Yes. Humanity. And so uh, when we don't touch appropriately, when we don't lift up uh, and we, we tear down and this is really this affects our health. This affects mental health, physical health, even our spiritual health, our spiritual well-being. And a lot of people get um, I'll say this twisted when it comes to spirituality. Spirituality means those that are agnostic, atheists. 
it means a purposeful life. And yeah. so a lot of folks uh, don't understand that spirituality has everything to do with the self-worth, the self-value, but also your purpose as you move in life. And if our world, if our nation says that you are less than, how does that impede on our health care and our well-being as individuals? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think this is the, this is the challenge when you look at sort of, I mean, for me, it, it's a slam dunk as a person who makes their living touching. Um, but we hear from providers all the time who say, well, I live in a really white community and I only see white people. So what's my job here? And, you know, we do, we used to do when in the before times when we did live classes, we would do this exercise where we would have students come in and uh, we'd split the groups and the you know, six of the students say would be on the massage table and we would take the ones who were going to be touching out in the hallway. And we would say, okay, when you go in and touch your partner in this next exercise, don't say any of this out loud, but kind of have a script in your head about like, get better. Don't be in pain, you know, just really directive sort of like stop what's happening now. And then, you know, we'd have them hold their, their partner's head for five minutes or so with that kind of internal energy. And then we would have them break contact and come back out in the hallway. And then the second time we would say, when you go back in this time, think about the wholeness and the beauty and how both of you fit into this giant web of belonging. And without fail, the people on the table would report that the second contact felt better felt more nurturing, felt more connected. And, and I feel like what you just talked about as a white provider, maybe working in a white rural community, I can create change by touching my white clients in a way that says you're white, but the world is full of lots of different people. And we are all part of this giant network. And I'm not, I am noticing my preference for you. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm not in a place where I actually can say like, okay, I'm really loving with that capital L and regardless of who comes in, I see their difference and love them not in spite of, but perhaps because of, but that if only, if I only interact with white people, I can still do that inner work and I can still make that change. And we can learn history and we should learn history and we can learn about systems. But as you said, and we just started reading here in our office, Resma Menicum's My Grandmother's Hands and learning about how we hold trauma in our bodies and whether it be racial trauma or other trauma that you can learn the history, but then you can't pretend that that's, that's what happened before that the way I interact with you today is informed by my inherited trauma, my current trauma, the trauma that I'm trying not to feel when I'm around black bodies, et cetera. And if you are in a care providing role, this is your job. <laughs> so I don't care what kind of care you're providing, whether you're a social worker or a chaplain or a physician, a massage therapist, if you don't get this, you're not helping. <laughs> oh, no. You know, you said here again, you said so much, Cal. I'll just a whole mouthful. I, I, I want to just touch a little bit of it. Please. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, I just had a work group call uh, with um, uh, our interfaith work group members. Um, we meet um, regularly and uh, we were talking about our 2021 priorities for CTAC and the role of faith leaders in that. And so this year, as well as last year, we have been very big on equity. And, and so because 
you know, the curtains and has almost really, we're exposed right now. So any organization, any entity right now, you really have to be paying attention to equity. Because for many folks who have been dealing with inequitable situations, they're tired and they're frustrated. And so if you, if you don't really tend to that, we really have the environment for a very explosive uh, behaviors to occur. So just wanted to say that. So there was a, a, a white reverend there and said, Angela, I am over uh, in a completely white congregation. And just exactly what you said, they got their other issues. They got, they're trying to deal with pandemic and all of this. And so she says, how do I uh, bring this to a forefront? And, you know, I always say this, uh, be the change that you want to see, right, JFK, right? So if we know that systemic racism is a problem, and if we know that United States and Canada has some constructs that have been created to intentionally, intentionally put the knee, and I'm using this metaphorically, on the neck of said individuals, Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What you wind up happening, what winds up happening is we accept status quo because right now, right now it's not affecting us. But the truth of the matter is it is affecting you because your neighbor, another human being is being treated inappropriately. That is not morally, I don't care what faith you are, that's not morally or ethically. It, it's just absolutely wrong. And it's not just the persons who are being persecuted and oppressed problem. This is all of our problem. And we're going to have to work together in order to find a reputable solution. You also said something Cal, based on touch, you, you, you said about massage therapy. And what is interesting for me is that all of my life, touch has been a very major component. But now we're living in COVID-19 and that ability to physically touch has been impeded. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget, I was in seminary and I, uh, I was taking, ironically, a course called Sexuality and Pastoral Practice. And I first learned of uh, skin touch. And, um, and so a lot of people, you know, basically from birth until the day we die, our need for physical contact remains. Being touched, starved, yes. uh, touch deprivation occurs when a person experiences little to no touch from other living things. Yes. We have a society that has been strategically set up, that there is a section of uh, humanity that refuses to touch another. And so you have folks who are dealing with deprivation, right? Because they're, being, they're not being touched. And then you also have uh, this other piece where they're being touched inappropriately. You have a group of folks that are, are, are are, are, I will say, mentally being raped on a continual basis. And so what I'm saying is, is that we have to think now, how do we touch without touching amid COVID-19? We still have the mandate. We, the folks still have the desire. That's why we're dealing with such mental health concerns amid COVID-19. 
Yeah. And so if we do not, this is our world, right? This is the moment that we're in. We have to collectively decide how am I going to improve life in 2021 amid the pandemic, amid COVID-19, amid systemic racism, amid, amid all of the inequalities. You, we haven't even gotten to gender inequalities. You know, <laughs> right, right. There's always an individual that it seems is being stepped on in order for us, another group to be propelled. That's, that's, that's out of order. That's, that's not going to create an effective and what we just talked about fair, a system that is just. Yeah. Yeah. We love our ladders, <laughs> but we want our ladders um, it, it, on the backs. Yes. Of, of human, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. other human beings. What we need to learn to do is, is hold hands and all rise. <laughs> all rise. Yeah. I was talking with, I wonder if you have an opinion about this. I was talking with um, our, our show's producer, Rebecca Sturgeon, and she had read in an article something about how um, white people don't know how to have what was called in the article real talk in the same way that the African-American community does. And that that is part of, um, it's, it limits our ability to have true conversation. And I, I wonder if, um, what, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I, I don't have a hard time believing that at all, but I think white people have so much work to do that I'm willing to take whatever whatever feedback is offered in the direction of our need to grow. Um, I, I'm not into necessarily compartmentalizing uh, individuals because I don't know all white people. Sure. <laughs> sure. Thank you for that. I know a lot of folks, but there is um, there's a book I think it's called. Um, Racist fragility or black, white fragility. White fragility. It's a great. It's a great article uh, uh, book. Um, I read it, and that speaks to um, your 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 statement, your question. Um, when we talk, I, I just know that there is a real talk, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you this. Just in my understanding of. I, I weave in between academic settings, uh, in the ghetto settings, mm -hmm. uh, in <laughs> places of worship where there's 20,000 members and then when there's 50, right? I, I, so I engage in many different environments. And what I found here again is a hierarchical understanding of um, what is intellect. Yeah. And so um, I have always one of my greatest lessons. I'll never forget it. I was doing an intern at Sherman Williams in Cleveland, Ohio, and it was connected to um, like this mall area which had food. And there was a, a person where I presume was homeless, um, asked for some money. And so it was a safe place. I said, I'm not going to give you no money, but I'll buy you a cup of coffee. And so um, we had a cup of coffee. And I learned he was extremely intelligent, smart, street smart. Mm -hmm. And so uh, many folks who are on the academic setting devalue other ways of knowing. And so if yeah. a person, let's 
Beyonce speaks in what they call broken language. Well, I would like to tell you, though, that broken language is very similar to the original Hebrew language, if you will, early on. So we were the ones who needed to add this grammar and structure to a sentence. So I find that quite funny that the sentence structure is quite different in yes. some languages of antiquity than it is currently. But it's what we said was right. I'm only getting to this because I have found that in Eurocentric conversations, this um, this this understanding of what knowledge is really it has been an impediment on having real conversation. Yeah. And so um, I have noticed that people of color, not just African-Americans, but those Latinas, uh, Latina X communities, um, Hispanic are more apt to accepting. Right. Uh, and so the conversations, there are many individuals from different parts of sections of academic scholarship, um, a different way of street learning knowledge. So there's some real talk in that. So, and so that's what I think is also a hindrance when some folks come to a place of uh, healthcare where um, we don't, as clinical providers, don't pay attention to their way of receiving information. And so what happens is what you're transcribed, what you're saying is not being received. Yeah. And so many times folks will say, well, they didn't want to accept it. No, how you uh, said it wasn't um, um, articulated in a manner where they can understand. So I don't know if I answered your question, Cal. Yeah, I, I think you, and then some. And, yeah, and then some. That's the thing, because if they don't understand, they're the dumb one, right? I mean, the perception. Well, that, <laughs> no, but no, 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 no. What I'm saying is that the that is the perception from from the sort of, mainstream provider, if I provide information to mm -hmm. a person who's been minoritized and they don't get it, I think, oh, they're not smart enough to get it. Mm -hmm. It's never, oh, maybe I didn't communicate that in a way that was accessible. It's mm -hmm. always sort of, well, if you were smarter, then I wouldn't have to. And it's like, well, no, you're, you are professing to be a carer of people. And so <laughs> your job is to actually understand what's necessary for this person you're caring for to make the best possible use of your advice. And but you will only be able to do that is if you if you if you in, invite yourself in with people on your social uh, on your social platforms, you intentionally get to know other cultures. So that and and I think a lot of people don't do that. You know. Uh, I think black people are forced to, to, to get an understanding of how white Americans act, react, understand, because this is the world we have to fit in. So uh, we have learned to not only adapt, but we have a um, we have to as a mo if we're going to survive. This has not been placed on folks of, um, that are Eurocentric. You know, you don't ever I mean, I won't say you don't ever. That's a harsh statement. But it hasn't been forced upon you in our nation to, to adapt. This is everything right here is, <laughs> unfortunately, it's what you're comfortable with. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I definitely see that piece come up uh, generationally as well. Um, when, my, when my mom was still living, uh, I would she didn't live close to me, but I would call her doctor after she had a doctor's appointment, have a conversation with their doctor and then call my mom back and explain to her what the doctor said <laughs> mm -hmm. because it was so much complex information and she just got overwhelmed and 
you know, so we see that come up in a variety of ways in, in healthcare. And I think for me as a provider of healthcare, it's been very important to be mindful mm -hmm. uh, of trying to figure out ways to communicate with my clients so that it is helpful for them and doesn't leave them feeling something less than or confused or overwhelmed or whatever the case may be. Yeah, we I, at CTAC, one of our big um, push this year is to um, really provide space to share models of care. Uh, and, and so even our models of care, um, and you can even go and see some of, um, there's a CTAC community engagement toolkit online. Um, you can go to uh, www w the c dot the c tech uh, dot org but uh what we found is is that a model of care are tools that we can use to engage any community and so uh even when we learn how to properly engage in this caring way and manner the way that we engage per se in let's say an urban environment, the same tools can be used to engage uh, folks that are in a rural environment. I think, you know, Martin Luther King was getting, I know I said his name already, but he was getting to the point that, uh, and even Malcolm X spoke of it. This is, it's not really a race issue. We utilize it. We, we, we've separated as race, but it's really a human issue. Yeah. That's what Malcolm X was saying. It's about humanity. And Martin Luther King uh, really was saying that when we when we get when we understand that we are more alike uh, than we are different, we will be mindful to serve each other. And so these models of care are really truly is meant to be used as a as a template on how do I as a clinician, how do I uh, any one of these discipline disciplines? How do I treat people that I am in touch with? Right. So learning how others receive information is very critical in our care. And that goes beyond color. It's really dignity. It's really um, respecting and respectful in learning. You, you have I, I, this is our model for the interfaith work group is that you have when you understand how folks receive information, you can meet them where they are. Yeah. Yeah. And outcomes improve and people's mm -hmm. lives improve. And it, mm -hmm. in some ways it's not that heavy a lift. I mean, if we could improve communication and understanding, imagine how much better care could be. And uh, yeah. Oh, well, we, we would love to talk with you for three more hours about all of this. And, uh, but we can't. Um, we have to. Uh, we have to wrap up for today. But um, are are there any things that you didn't say that you think we really should know, or or anything that you really want to leave our listeners with? I just believe that we have an opportunity here. We have an opportunity to leave um, this world because our, our life is just but a breath. Uh, we have um, an opportunity to leave it better than what we found it. Um, I, I love um, Imam Yusuf Hassan. He is a um, 
he's I think he's the only Muslim chaplain actually um, in New York. He's at Sloan Kettering Hospital, and and um, he he said this to me once, and I thought it was beautiful. He says the Prophet Muhammad, um, you would say peace be unto him. He he taught us uh, this prayer that sums up our faith, our hope, and our aspirations, and things that matter. So. When one of us is sick, we say, I hope you will take care of me. I hope you will listen to me or I hope to meet my loved ones in paradise. And so what I leave with you all is that I hope we will take care of one another. And I hope we will listen to one another. That is my hope. That is my prayer. And that is my final word. <clears throat> Thank you. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, this has been another episode of Interdisciplinary. Kathy, anything, uh, any parting words? No, I, I think that really just sums it up that uh, let's just take care of each other. You know, uh, we're in healthcare. Let's put the emphasis on care. Yeah. And, and opportunities often come with challenge. So it doesn't mean we're going in the wrong direction because it's hard. Take advantage. Thank you guys for listening, staying with us today. And uh, please go out and tell the world on social media and wherever else you interact with humans to come and give a listen and see what it's like in here where we're trying to care about each other a little bit better. And uh, go ahead and uh, check out our Patreon options if you want to make sure this podcast keeps happening. We keep getting awesome guests and getting out to all the places where people want to listen. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. You can send us feedback at info at healwell.org. That's info at healwell.org. New episodes will be posted weekly via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. Thank you. <laughs>